Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. This uh, precious text of Scripture has become an occasion for us to consider the question, how does God want us to worship Him in song? This has led to a very large digression, I'm afraid. When we return to our text in Revelation, properly speaking, we will endeavor to get our bearings there again so we don't lose our train of thought. But we still have a ways to go in these present considerations. We spent a handful of sermons setting a foundation of principle. And apart from this principle, I'm afraid that there can't be any understanding of this question. This would be the regulative principle of worship. In God's worship, if it is not commanded... It is considered forbidden. This is uh, an element of Christian ethics that has two categories, not three. A thing is either commanded by God or lacking commandment. It is considered forbidden. And so our question has become, what has God commanded with respect to the service of song? The answer to this is complex because his command with respect to it has changed from age to age. We ought not to let this uh, bother us too much. Sometimes people can look at these things and say that they seem overly complex. Throughout redemptive history, some of the ordinances have remained fairly constant and there's been very little in the way of change. You might think of the ordinance of prayer, for example. Others have undergone great changes. You might think of the sacraments, for example. So it ought not to be any prejudice against their consideration here in as much as there are changes down through uh, the ages. In this respect, the service of song is more like the sacraments than it is like the ordinance of prayer. But our job as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, our job is to learn his lessons, however he's been pleased to deliver them, whether they be simple lessons about simple things or complex lessons about complex things. C.S. Lewis changed my life when he said, 
Whoever got the notion that theology ought to be a simple thing? And as much as it's a representation of God, very much the way that the created realm is, why would we think it to be any more simple than, say, physics or biochemistry? The elementary uh, lessons of physics are very easy to apprehend. But there are some lessons in physics that you will only apprehend with great diligence and great application. Well, here we have a relatively complex ordinance, at least with respect to its history. So this has brought us to the history of the service of song, and we're going to be endeavoring to chart its continuities and its discontinuities so that we might ultimately come to this goal. How does God want us in this present age to worship him in song? And I have uh, added something of a bonus goal, some consideration concerning the lawful use of music outside of uh, the context of worship. We have already been able to make great progress in the first age of the world. Uh, in some ways, this is the uh, largest history of the world, spanning from the creation, roughly 4000 B.C., to the time of Moses, 1500 B.C., this is uh, 2,500 years, almost half of the history of the world. And so in this sense, it is a very, uh, it's a very large period of time to consider. But in considering it, immediately we only have two texts. And we have considered those texts already. Uh, we had the case of Jubal, probably roughly... Uh, 3,500 B.C. in Genesis chapter 4, verse 21. And also a text concerning Jacob, about 1740 B.C. in Genesis chapter 31, verses 26 and 27. Just a brief review of our fruits from this period of time. Uh, there is no evidence during this period that song was used in the worship of Jehovah at all. We could prove at least three ordinances, preaching, prayer, and sacrifice. Before you get to Jacob, another will be added, the sacrament of circumcision. But we can be confident of this, that for uh, at least the first 500 years of the history of the world, there was no music in the service of song simply because there was no such thing. Jubal is called the father of musicians. He is the uh, progenitor of musicians, the originator of the musical science. So we can conclude that there was no worship in song for these 500 years. Just the fact to put in your pocket prayer, the ordinance of prayer was already an ancient thing in the world before there was song at all. And you'd have some uh, 3,000 years of world history uh, before you would have anything like a regular service of song. Prayer was already a very ancient thing in the world indeed by that time. Our evidence, this will sound strange to you, but our evidence concerning uh, the service of song, or the lack thereof, in this first stage of the issue, our evidence concerning it is not complete. As we continue to go forward in redemptive 
history, we will see, look. We will see evidence that actually has a bearing upon former times. But we will have to wait for that. Uh, uh, just in brief. There's two points to keep in mind. I don't undertake a defense, just so you know what I mean when I say that there's more evidence. First of all, there is no evidence, in spite of uh, a very large set of instructions on how to worship God, there is no evidence that the people of God were singing to God in any sort of regular or stated way in congregational worship through the Mosaic era. And this is most remarkable. Because of the breadth of the instruction, all of the details of the tabernacle, its worship, and even what they were to be doing in their synagogues. These things are given in great detail, and yet there is no song. The Levites would be the great keepers of song in David's age. And yet the Levites, in spite of the fact that they are divided into their several houses, they are never given the duty to superintend any sort of service of song during this time. This is one branch of the evidence. Also, you remember that um, during the time of Samuel, there was the wandering band of prophets. Uh, during that period of time, uh, they would prophesy using musical instruments. But this is not something that the average Israelite participated in. How do we know this? Because when Saul goes and he joins into the midst of the prophets and he's seized by the Spirit... They no longer take him to be a normal Israelite. What do they say? Does this mean that Saul is also among the prophets? If all of the people of God were participating in, a, in the service of song, they wouldn't think it so strange that Saul had prophesied using uh, musical instruments. But they take it to be a remarkable and singular thing. We'll look at those in more detail as we go forward. All of that seems to imply if there was no music during the Mosaic era then likely not beforehand. David's time is presented in the scripture as being a watershed, a great turning point in the history of Israel and its worship. We're going to look at another watershed event uh, this morning. Thus far, concerning worship uh, or music within the context of worship, we've also cast a glance upon music outside of worship, and it does appear to be a thing indifferent. Remember, outside of worship, Christian ethics is a three-category system. Things commanded, things forbidden, and things indifferent. With respect to music, I don't think anybody will endeavor an argument that outside of worship we must do it. I think you'd be hard-pressed to produce any sort of scripture prohibition that it must not be done. But rather, it seems to fall into those category, that third category of things indifferent. And this is very much the way that it's treated both in Genesis 4, as it's noted in the midst of general uh, cultural and scientific development, and in uh, that text in Genesis 31, where Laban obviously takes Jacob to be a person who likes music, thinks it's appropriate and, um, and useful in the context of a celebration. Uh, so we'll come back to that from time to time as we proceed. If you have that much, then you have as much as I've intended so far in the argument. 
In other words, if you are up, and a, up with me to that point and able to agree on all of those points, then uh, we have enough agreement to continue forward. Today we come to the second great era in the service of song. Comparatively, it is a shorter era from uh, the time of Moses, about uh, 1500 B.C. to the time of David, about 1000 B.C. Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 15. Here we have what is known as the Song of the Sea. The specific date is probably 1491 B.C., give or take a year. And this is the first recorded use of song uh, with respect to worship. And before getting into our text, I did want to say something. I'm I'm always endeavoring to um, enlarge our studies and our considerations. And in uh, recent days, due to exertions actually that have nothing to do with this, but rather acquainting myself more broadly with Jewish antiquities, I discovered that uh, our present considerations are no uh, new considerations, but these are actually very old Biblical observations going back before the time of Christ in all likelihood among the Jews. The Jews have an ancient doctrine that there was no song used in worship from the beginning of the world to the time of Moses. So this is not a new doctrine, but a very old one that appears to have its roots before the time of Christ. In saying that, I I should say that the old Jewish doctors really have two views on this. Some think that Adam sang a song, but there was no song from Adam to Moses, and others deny that even Adam ever sang a song. But they are all united in the view that from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, no song was used in worship. Uh, Just very briefly, among those Jews that thought that uh, Adam sang a song immediately after the fall, we have the Targum of the Song of Solomon, which is where I first discovered it. The Targum is a very old Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Its roots go all the way back to the 5th century B.C. That's where its roots go. Basically, it grew out of this sort of dynamic You'd have a rabbi stand up, he'd read the scriptures in Hebrew, and hardly anybody understood what he read. So then right there on the fly, he would render it into uh, the new language of the people since the Babylonian exile, the Chaldean language, or the Aramaic language as it's called now. Uh, Likely these things were written down and edited and modified over uh, centuries. There was a lot of... uh, Work done on the Targum in the first century A.D. The Targum of the Song of Solomon was not completed until um, maybe the sixth century A.D. It, it shows some uh, some signs of being influenced by the Talmud up to this point. The Targum of the Song of Solomon. You say, what does all of this have to do with the Song of Solomon? That very first verse in Hebrew is very short. In Aramaic, it goes about a page and a half. And what it does is it basically gives you a history of song, the extraordinary songs, which they count to be ten, in the Old Testament. 
they thought that Adam sang a song. This is, uh, this is affirmed by the old rabbis recorded in what's called the Leviticus Rabbah. It's basically an old Hebrew commentary finished in the 7th century A.D., but citing rabbis that go back much, much further. And also, for those of you that have uh, know something about Kabbalah, which is becoming a popular thing again, the Zohar from 13th century Spain, a Kabbalistic text, maybe the father of the Kabbalistic texts, um, also uh, preserves this idea. The idea is basically this. That Adam fell on the sixth day, almost immediately after his creation, received forgiveness, and then composed a song of thanksgiving on the Sabbath day following. And the old Jews thought that this was Psalm 92, a psalm or song for the Sabbath day. The first couple of verses read in this way. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night upon an instrument of ten strings and upon the psaltery, upon the harp with a solemn sound. So the Targum of Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, reads in this way, at least the, the little bit that's germane to our immediate considerations. The first song Adam sung at the time when his sins were forgiven him. And when the Sabbath day came, he put a covering upon his lips and sung a psalm or song for the Sabbath day. The second song sung Moses and so on. So you see here that for our purposes, they admit of no song between uh, Adam and Moses uh, these Jewish doctors are almost certainly wrong. And the evidence is right on the face of it. First of all, I take it to be a thing very unlikely that Adam sinned on the sixth day, on the very day of his creation. You say, why is that? I wouldn't deny its possibility in principle, but rather the exp expression of God's repose and pleasure in the seventh day. And his declaration at the end of the sixth that all things were uh, very good. These things taken together, uh, to my own mind and judgment, make it very unlikely that the first fall of man was on the sixth day of creation. Second, I think it's nearly impossible that Psalm 92 could have been written by Adam, especially with the mention of musical instruments, which would not be in the world for another 500 years. Certainly not on the sixth day. He seems to have had a very busy day on that sixth day. There's also mentions, mention of the courts of the Lord, which would not be uh, until the time of Moses, 2,500 years later, and also being uh, surrounded by enemies. Uh, all in all, uh, this hypothesis of these doctors is most improbable. But there was another branch of rabbis who uh, said that there was never any song in worship until the time of Moses. Uh, I'm going to read to you out of another old Hebrew comment, commentary called the Exodus Rabbah. This was probably written in the 10th century A.D., but again, it cites, cites rabbis going back to the very uh, first era of the uh, rise of the Christians. And uh, the Exodus Rabbah reads in this way, Adam never composed any song. So here they're denying 
this other tradition. And the song which Moses and the children of Israel sang at the Red Sea was the first that ever was sung in the world. And indeed, is the first that is mentioned in Scripture. And so, uh, uh, they do have a diversity of opinion, but they agree that there was no song used in worship until the end of this very long interval of time, 2,500 years. These are no new considerations, but perhaps are as old as the beginning of the Targumic literature, 5th century B.C., and a tradition of rabbis talking about it ever since. This brings us back to our text in, in Exodus 15, Remember, we are right on the heels of Israel's miraculous deliverance out of Egypt. This is uh, the great paradigmatic deliverance of all of the Old Testament era. God delivered them out of their slavery, and he did it by a great miracle. He opens up the waters of the Red Sea. Israel passes through on dry ground, and then when the Egyptians the mightiest military power on earth attempts to pursue. They are destroyed as the waters close again. We get the history of the crossing in Exodus chapter 14. And even of their unbelief on uh, the Egyptian shore. And then in Exodus 15, the history is retold in song unto the praise of Jehovah. And their unbelief has now given way to faith. And the worship of God. Something I want you to keep in mind. If, if we are right about this uh, age of the world. That there was no service of song. Until this extraordinary song. Isn't it a striking thing. That a new and glorious form of worship. Was instituted for this great act of deliverance. By God. But just don't forget that as we go forward. We will probably have uh, opportunity to reflect back in coming weeks. But just keep that in mind. I wanted to look at the very beginning and the very end of the song. We, we read the song in its entirety last week because I thought its matter ought not to be completely neglected. But our business this morning is not so much its content, but its form. The fact that it was music given by God to the people of God for his worship. Verses 1 and 2. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And stand down to verse 20. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. There is a couple of points that we can take away from this. First of all, we can say this with certainty. This is clearly a song for worship. 
for the worship of God. Notice they sang, then sang they this song unto the Lord. And so we see in verse 1, I uh, will sing unto the Lord. And in verse 2, the Lord is my song. Here God is uh, being worshipped by means of song. Uh, interesting, interesting point. We won't pursue it, but it, it's a noteworthy expression that the Lord is their song. God and his glory is the subject matter of the song. It is also by his spirit and by his deeds that they are moved to sing. All, all, in all of this, you see how dependent they are upon special revelation in order to worship God rightly. God himself is our song. That, that bends back on our considerations with respect to the regulative principle of worship. If worship is to glorify God, its great and principal end, then God must reveal himself. And this ordinance is no different. The Lord is our song. A second point and this is one very important for this age, if we are to understand it, this worship song is led by the prophets, by Moses and by Miriam. Uh, this first worship song is led by none other than that great Old Testament prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, we have a prophecy of the coming of Christ, a prophet that would be like unto Moses and even greater than Moses. The fulfillment of this was proclaimed by God himself from heaven in uh, Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. He is the great prophet of the church. Until the Lord Jesus Christ, with the possible exception of John the Baptist, there was never one like unto Moses. And all of the other Old Testament prophets are portrayed as uh, paling in the comparison. Uh, you don't need to turn here. This is a narrative that you will all be familiar with. You remember in Numbers chapter 12, there is a notice of another rebellion. This rebellion touches Moses very closely, though, in that it arises from his own family from Aaron and from Miriam. And in this we learn a lot about Moses' position in the Old Testament. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. It's noteworthy as we go forward that uh, Aaron and Miriam are contending here that they are also prophets. And they contend rightly. We've already had a notice in Exodus that Aaron was a prophet and would serve the function of a prophet. Here Miriam also contends that she's a prophet and she will not be contradicted by the Lord, but rather simply be said that uh, she was a lower order, as it were, than Moses. She's a prophet indeed, but not a prophet like unto Moses. Verse 3. Now the man, Moses, was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. 
And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? In one sense, they are all prophets, but Moses is a prophet of a very different quality. The Lord said that he would speak uh, by means of other prophets, but they, he would talk to them in dark sayings, in dreams and in visions of the night. But he would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And we know that Moses received uh, extraordinary revelation on Sinai's uh, mount. Uh, Moses, in some ways you might say, with the possible ex exception of John the Baptist, was the Old Testament prophet par excellence. He was the great son of the Old Testament, and the other prophets were just so many stars in comparison. Miriam, in our text, Exodus chapter 15, is expressly designated a prophetess. Just a note. With respect to the regulative principle of worship, this is ex exactly what you expect, isn't it? If this is a new form of worship, and we have every reason to think that it is, and the regulative principle of worship is moral, and thus binding in all ages, grounded in the very nature of God and his relationship to his creature, then a new form would have to come from the Lord. And how else would he deliver it except through his servants, the prophets? So here we have divine warrant for this new service of song provided by the prophets in their prophetic role and office. Just keep this in mind because it's going to be our contention that this, this model will never change. That the service of song will always come by means of the prophets. And the contents of the song will always be delivered through the prophets. Once the service of song begins at this uh, time, although this was a singular occasion, and it seems that this uh, song of the sea was only sung on the one occasion, but here a model is set up that has never changed from Exodus chapter 15 to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that the content of the song comes from the prophets. Again, I don't take that as a, as a case yet proven. We'll need to make the observations as we go along, but to give you some idea of where we're going so that you can understand the significance of the evidence that's in front of us right now. What might we say about the music here? I can say this for sure, that it's very difficult to draw certain conclusions about the music itself. We know that Miriam at least leads in 
the second half. Interestingly enough, a note on, on uh, Hebrew grammar. Uh, very difficult. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, the verb sang is singular. But then you get a compound and formally plural subject. Moses and the children of Israel. Altogether, that's a plural subject, right? But the way you get it in the Hebrew order is, and he sang, namely Moses, and thus the singular agreeing with the singular, and also the uh, children of Israel. Uh, this is not an uncommon thing for the, for the verb in Hebrew to agree with uh, the nearest subject uh, given a complex subject uh, or a compound subject. So it's a singular verb which would agree with Moses but not with the children of Israel, although the children of Israel is properly also the subject. But in my own observations, um, over the years in the Hebrew grammar, when you find this structure, there is an emphasis upon that first subject. You might also translate it like this. And Moses sang, and also the children of Israel, the song, which puts a, uh, as it were, a spotlight upon Moses and emphasizes his own role. There can be little doubt, based on broader contextual considerations, that Moses, even as he led the people through the Red Sea, also led them in the service of worship. But Miriam leads in some sort of a second half, and we'll, we'll talk about this as well. We have the, a reference to at least one more musical instrument, one that we have seen before, the tof. We saw this in um, Genesis 31 last week. This is probably rightly translated timbrel or tambourine, if you think of it as being a tambourine, that's probably very accurate, except remove the little cymbals, the little jingles in the tambourine, and it will be just the right thing. Our understanding of this uh, instrument is confirmed in as much as Miriam is said to take it in hand. So it does appear to be some sort of a handheld instrument that seems to suggest it's a smaller kind of drum. But we shouldn't get too carried away that we know what this drum sounded like very much. Uh, there is still quite a bit of question whether or not there were one heads or, or two heads. You know, a drum can't have a head on its top and on its bottom. That can greatly influence the sound. Uh, how thick this skin was and how it was tuned could greatly influence whether or not it made a deep sound or rather... Uh, with respect to drums, our tambourines make a higher pitched, uh, well, drums don't properly have a pitch, but it's not that deep thundering sound, but a lighter uh, sound. It could be that um, no other musical instrument is mentioned here, but at the end of the day, it's very difficult to say. We've got the problem of the mahalah. In our King James translated, version translated the dance. So they uh, worshipped and dance. Those that take the text in this way uh, relate the noun here to the verb hul, which means to whirl about, can mean to writhe, and in this way to dance. Uh, supporting this interpretation, we have uh, uh, 
the Aramaic, the, the Targum version, which we said parts of it could be as old as the 5th century B.C. It has the Septuagint, 4th century B.C. So this is certainly a very ancient form of interpretation. However, there are uh, interpreters, ancient and Reformation, that take it to be another musical instrument, which creates the problem here. If I were to use the word sistrum, would you know what I, what I meant? You've probably seen a picture of one. It's basically a rattle. And they used it in Egypt. Um, imagine uh, a handle with something that looks almost like a fork coming up. Edges probably uh, curled out with metal bars running between the branches of the fork and little um, slides on it. And you'd rattle it by shaking it back and forth, and they would go back and forth on the, uh, on the slides. Uh, the Syriac and the Arabic translations take it in this way. Now, compared to the Targum and the Septuagint, they're relatively modern. And by that I mean roughly with the beginning of the Christian era. However, the Syriac and the Arabic are cognate languages of the Hebrew. And in, and in Hebrew difficulties, are usually worth con, uh, consulting because, of course, the Arabic and the Syriac will have um, similar words. They're, they're all thought to be, they're family languages. Um, very much, uh, English doesn't retain as much of it, but if you ever tried to, to learn one of the Romance languages, uh, Spanish, French, Italian, and received help from a Latin root in trying to understand a bit of Spanish or French. Then you'll know the relationship. All of these, uh, all of these languages are related as a family. They're all in the same family. And it's very interesting that the Syriac and the Arabic translated sistrum, something like one of these rattles. So then it would be Miriam and these women worship God uh, with the toth, with the drum, and with the rattle. There's another possible root that might be involved here. Halil, you saw we, we had a michalah, translated in our version dance. The halil is a pipe, and uh, halal is a verbal root to bore. So it would be an instrument that you drilled holes in, you bored holes in it, and that's how it produces its sound. The uh, Reformation translation of Junius and Tremelius supports this almost universally when this word comes up. They translate it on the pipe or with piping. Uh, Tremelius in particular was a Jew who was converted to the Christian religion and embraced the Reformation. Uh, great expert in the, in the Hebrew language and he took it in this way. For those of you that knew, know the name Henry Ainsworth, an Englishman, uh, yet residing in uh, the Netherlands among an English congregation, great expert in Hebrew, also took it as pipe or piping. You say, Pastor, what do you think here? I think that this highlights the great difficulty of these matters. I'm going to attempt to keep an eye on this problem as we go, because this word will come up a bunch of times. Um, To tell you the truth here, I, I lean a little bit to the idea here of piping. 
uh, in the coupling. But there are other times when, when dance seems a little stronger. And it is possible that the word is used in different ways in different places. And we'll just endeavor to keep an eye on it. I say that this highlights something that's very important. One of the points that we're going to be making is that uh, with respect to the service of song in the, uh, as it was practiced in the temple, you couldn't recover it now if you wanted to. You couldn't revive it and do it now if you wanted to. Uh, most In God's good pleasure, and he, he sometimes does this with his ancient ordinances, when he is pleased to set them aside, he buries them so that they could not be done even if a man was inclined to do them. Just so you know, uh, in spite of Jewish pretensions to the contrary in the present day, you couldn't do... Um, the dietary regulations, not even if you wanted to, unless you limited yourself to those things that are uh, expressly allowed, but you dared not venture because all of those many forbidden animals are lost. Their, their specific identities are lost in the mists of uh, time. I've said this before, and it's something to keep in mind. It is not unusual for one of the first things to be lost in a language is its technical vocabulary dealing with some aspect of its science. So, uh, technical vocabulary dealing with um, uh, zoology, technical vocabulary dealing with musicology, these will be the kinds of things that are first lost. English will, in, uh, at some point, be an ancient language in the, in the world. I would gather that probably some of our technical terms uh, gathered around the computer science of the present day will be some of the first terms lost, easily disused as a science moves on to other things. And probably 2,000 years from now, if the Lord should tarry, people looking back at the English of this period will be completely mystified over uh, terms associated with Microsoft and its use. And they're simply lost. You see how they get lost in the midst of time. Uh, we will come back to these sorts of things. Perhaps we have women dancing with um, with uh, drums. Perhaps they've got drums and rattles. Perhaps they have drums and pipes. It's, it's hard to say for sure. One other difficulty with respect to the music is Miriam's answer. It says Miriam answered them. And the them is actually masculine. seems to almost as if the men sang and then Miriam leads the women in singing back. The Hebrew verb here is ana. It can signify, and this is part of the difficulty, everything from to answer, to, to sing tunefully, or even to sing responsively. So it's got a wide semantic domain. And this gives us two possible interpretations. Interpretation one is simply that Miriam and the women joined in the singing. That would be, in some ways, the simplest. Others, uh, really focusing upon the idea of answer, uh, think that this suggests an antiphonal singing, like a singing back and forth, perhaps... uh, the men would sing a line and then the women would sing the line back or that sort of thing. Um, this, uh, this idea of an antiphonal song may be something like this where 
Uh, Moses might call out the line, the men would sing it, and then Miriam and all the women would would, uh, repeat it back. This idea is supported by Philo the Jew. He was a rough contemporary of the apostles, a great uh, rabbi of the period. The Talmuds, which wouldn't be finished until, say, the 6th century A.D., but slight rabbis going back much further, think it indicates this antiphonal song. Some of you know that old Andrew Willett is one of my favorites uh, as far as old Puritan commentators. And he, he suggests several things. Um, he thought that perhaps uh, the women repeated every line, so the men would basically sing a line and then the women would sing the line back uh, to them. He also suggested that maybe since only the first line is given here, notice that the first line of Moses' song is here repeated by by the women. Uh, uh, he also suggested that it's a possibility that the women, as a refrain, continued to recite the first line back. In other words, the men would go on singing the song, but the women would always sing the first line back. Well, it also cites Calvin. And uh, Calvin's idea was that the men and the women formed uh, two distinct companies and that they sang the song separately possible. My own view, uh, I think on the bare mention of Anna, it would be impossible to decide with any sort of confidence. But inasmuch as that first line is repeated, this particular example seems to be antiphonal to me, that there is an answering again. And then you get the first example of it. They answer back the first line. But it's, I think all of this illustrates that to try to recover the song style of, of the Israelites is uh, well nigh impossible at this point in history. I do hope that by all of this description we make not only that point, but it does help to make it a bit more vivid in your, uh, in your minds. This, this must have been quite, uh, quite an occasion for them. Uh, and quite a remarkable thing to hear uh, all of these voices. 600,000 men, probably 3 million people involved in this in this song as they call out one to another in song. And you've got the, uh, the drums and perhaps other things. Uh, no doubt, quite, a, uh, quite an experience. Singular in the history of redemption up to this point. A brand new thing. A, the greatest of all deliverances and this most remarkable service of song for the time. A couple of conclusions just to wrap things up by way of review. We have a growing body of evidence that this was the first song ever used in the worship of Jehovah. This song was commanded and warranted by God himself through his prophets, Moses, and even uh, Uh, Miriam's participation is under the title of prophetess. God himself provides the words here by inspiration. And he even authorizes the use of the musical instruments through his prophetess, uh, Miriam. And perhaps even the dance in the processional. If there was, uh, we'll see this, that uh, if dance is right here, this might have been a part of a handful of sacred processionals that took place 
Another example would be when the ark came up to Jerusalem under David's leadership at that uh, point in time. There are a handful of processionals, marchings, in uh, the history of worship authorized by God himself. And it also appears that this particular song was limited to this occasion. Part of the evidence is negative, and in that sense, relatively weak. It's, there's no evidence that it was ever used later. But more than that, we, we do have an additional corroboration. In Hebrew, um, the then, then sang Moses, is uh, explicit. The word then actually appears. It would not have been a, an unusual thing for just simply to say, and Moses sang. And a lot of times, uh, translators will gloss that little word and with a then, if it's the next thing that happens. Um, but here, they translate it then, because uh, it is expressly in the te text, then, at that time, they sang uh, this song. So it does appear that this was limited to this single uh, occasion, and that they did not endeavor to repeat it after this. Next week, if the Lord wills, we will look at uh, that little song in Numbers, Rise Up a Well, uh, Spring Up a Well, and the relationship of the lawgiver, Moses, to that. Uh, we'll look at the 90th Psalm, which is uh, attributed to uh, Moses, and perhaps we might even make some advance to uh, Deborah and her great song, if, if time permits. Let us pray together.